Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Eclectic is a word that comes to mind about my guest today. From a youth that included foster care and more than a kid's fair share of trauma and dysfunction, learning about adversity and being conscious in choosing to overcome it were a big part of his growing up. His entrepreneurial journey includes comic book author, TV contributor, editor, film actor, producer, He found great passion in digital assets and has dedicated much of his career to the world of crypto, so much so that Forbes named him the Count of Monte Crypto. Among his community engagements, he serves on the board of nonprofit Casa de Amparo, helping children escape abuse and neglect, and the European Women's Association. He's a member of Foster Care Alumni of America and volunteer in the Maryland Response Medical Reserve Corps. Meet the unflappable founder and CEO of Life's Tough Tough Media, Cripturns.com and Life's Tough.com, Dustin Plantholt. Dustin, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Molly, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Dustin, there's a lot. If you Google you, there's a lot of high profile out there. Big titles, accomplishments in your CV. Rather, what I'm interested in for listeners is not what we might quote say is glamorous, but rather appreciating the story of you getting to know yourself for who you are. I read your guiding motto, we are going to change the world one heart at a time. And I look forward to how this sentiment came to be. Well, thank you again. You know, it's interesting you say high profile or finding a lot about me. You know, it wasn't always that way. You know, that's part of your own story, is it not? What do you want? And ultimately, what is your greatest aspiration? Uh, that was one of the questions I'd ask myself as a little boy. What did I want? You know, I, I grew up with, we said earlier, a little bit of dysfunction in my life. Now, we all have some level of dysfunction. The parents we had my, most likely would not have been the parents we would have chosen for ourselves. But my situation was one that I came from I came from poverty. Now, I've seen poverty around the world. My situation is candidly not as bad as at least I thought it was. Um, But along the way, I had to make some choices. And like you, and say it skillfully, it is all about making a decision to say it, to speak your truth, and to embrace it. Sometimes even embracing the parts of your story that are the most painful, because it's at that moment that you connect with others. I'm convinced, Molly, that you don't connect on strengths. You connect on weaknesses. Uh, for sure. We do connect on weaknesses, the vulnerability. Uh, Dustin, where did you grow up? First, uh, first memories as a youth? So first memories I had were in this dilapidated house in a town called Rainbow, California, uh, just outside of a, a town called Temecula. Now, some might have heard of Temecula. It's, it's wine country. Uh, but Rainbow was an off-the-beaten path. It wasn't beautiful. It, it's not like you think it'd be a rainbow. Uh, nothing would grow there. And That's the place that my dad was raising my sister and myself uh, when my mother left. So your sister, older, younger? My sister was older. Uh, She took care of me. Uh, My mother left the family 
uh, when I was 18 months. Uh, she left for another relationship, uh, leaving my father, who was a very dysfunctional single dad, a, a motorcycle enthusiast, um, and a bit of a knucklehead, a, a, a man himself that didn't have, he didn't have any parenting. He didn't know how to be a dad. Um, my sister was what I had. She became my mom. So, Dustin, did you, when did you, when did it dawn on you that, you know, we don't have a lot of money and this parenting situation might not be like the other kids? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. Uh, it would have been probably one of the first times I went into foster care. Uh, my dad had a, my dad's job at the time was construction and also stealing cars. And he stole cars for a motorcycle club, a one percenter motorcycle club. And he was a very bad car thief because he kept getting caught. And every time he would get caught, my sister and I would go into foster care. We'd be awarded to the state of California. We would go for about 30 days. And I can remember one of the occasions, I was just celebrating my uh, I was just celebrating my fourth birthday. And one of the other kids, his father came by to visit him and, and gave him a Christmas gift or a, a birthday gift. And I remember feeling like I didn't have what the other kids had. Uh, my father was in jail serving a 30-day sentence. Um, and when we ultimately went back to our our shack, because that's what it was, uh, there were no gifts. Uh, my father had a, a bad addiction to drugs. He wasn't focused on raising my sister and myself. Um, and my best memories were my sister and I, we would go to this little church there in Rainbow, uh, Rainbow Community Church. And the pastor, his name is Ed Lockmiller, to this day is one of the, my dearest mentors in this world. The pastor there would give my sister and I some food. And, and I quickly realized that when others were giving us food, we weren't at the top of the totem pole. Candidly, we were at the bottom. But to me, I will tell you, and somebody said this to me recently, it's the ones at the bottom of the totem pole that are the strongest. They're the ones that now hold uh, others up. And it was my fuel. Uh, it showed me that in life to have empathy for others, that for some people, for no fault of their own, they were born into situations. And to be grateful for what you have and be thankful, but also to work hard and not allow yourself to become, well, a volunteer victim. So that's easy to blurt out now. And I am wondering, just, you know, and and I don't know how, because I haven't had that, you know, I'm fortunate not to have had that. Did you, uh, were you mad, sad? Uh, did you feel sorry for yourself as a kid? Were you just like, got to just got to get by? I mean, did you feel like we weren't going to make it? I mean, do you recall? That's a great question. Questions? You know, I have heard a lot of people ask questions. That's probably the best question someone's ever asked me, Molly. Um you know, when you have an ADHD brain, it's both a curse and a blessing. Um, I can remember at the age of five, my father had um, had just dropped my sister off from school and he had taken me in his truck and it was a stolen truck. And we got pulled over by law enforcement in Temecula, California. And my father realized really quickly that this officer wasn't going to let him go. He was pulled over in a stolen truck. And so my father decided to floor it and he did. He led the Temecula Police Department on a high-speed police chase. It didn't end well. Uh, my dad decided to, to fly the truck off a cliff, and it didn't it didn't land like a truck would, like a normal truck would. This truck decided to do what a truck off of a cliff would do, and it tumble-salted, and it hit, and my, my body, I, I hit the dashboard, as the police report says, uh, that I was in pretty bad shape. My father, was, my father ended up getting sentenced to prison. He served over 16 years uh, thereafter, and... When I had gone through this experience in this moment, you know, you talk about the life and, and what I knew. I only knew, I only ever knew drama. I knew nothing else. I didn't know what trauma even felt like. I just knew there was always action and, and excitement. It seems to be around my family. Uh, 
So when I went into foster care after that, and then ultimately went to live with my mother after I'd healed in the hospital stitches on my tongue, um, I realized that I had these moments that would hit me, that I'd always be afraid. I'd be afraid I was going to be sent somewhere. I was going to move to another foster care home. Uh, it was a hard time in my life. I was adjusting, but I had my sister. So my sister was two and a half years older uh, than me. Um, I knew I was always different than most kids. I didn't connect with others the way that I would say some of the other kids did because my brain never stopped working. I was always reliving moments in my life. I was always thinking that I could do the impossible. I wanted to be like my dad. He could, he could you know, race cars really fast. But then I realized as the older I got that, that these moments, and I call it childhood trauma, that it is very real and you have a choice. I call it the tipping point. You can either choose to move forward or you can build a prison around your mind and lock it within. Um, and I chose not to do that path. And it was hard and it wasn't easy. And I wasn't always born the count. I started off with simple beginnings, but it started off with a cookbook. Molly, I knew what I wanted and what I wanted was more. I just didn't know what more was. Wow, that is pretty crazy for a little boy. So this ADHD, which you know is just commonplace, uh, talk a little bit. When did that? When was that? Uh, did you know that you had that? And what does that mean? You know, I always knew that I had this brain that would not stop, but it was also part of my creativity. You know, my first business was at, I guess I don't know, eleven, ten, eleven, twelve years old, uh, mowing lawns and raking leaves and shoveling. Uh, shoveling snow. And yes, people should still be doing that stuff to make a little extra side income. Um, but I wanted to keep busy. So I was able to use my my busy brain for good. I set my mind on something and well, independent of death or a coma, I was going to get it. I was a little stubborn, a little hardheaded, uh, but it was the impulsivity. You know, that's the thing that when you recognize that you have these moments in your life, that you're incredibly impulsive and you don't really think about everything or every consequence, you start to ask why, why was I being impulsive or why was I being so hyper uh, as a father, as a parent of a, of a boy? Um, my son is very similar <laughs> to me and the way his brain operates. It's very fast. And there are times I try to tether him to tell him I got to slow it down a little bit. Um, but I didn't have that. I wish I would have had the role models that I have around me today. I wish I'd have had the mentors. And you know, I went from one extreme with a father that was a, a drug abuser, drug dealer, um, a, a thief, to a new extreme where I went to live with my mother and my mother had started over with a new life and she was then with a pastor. Um, so I went from one extreme into a household where my journey or my future was to be a pastor. And that's what I was being raised to be, uh, a pastor of a church. Raised to be a pastor in a church. That is not something I would have expected to hear. Justin, when you reunited with your mom and again at 18 months old you don't really recall uh what was that like you know i remember getting off of this airplane and i i recalled the pilots were so nice to me they had given me they let me seen like where they fly the plane so the cockpit they had given me candy they had given me a little pin and when i got out of the airport in bwi baltimore washington international i remember seeing my sister and it was the the greatest feeling because she and i had been separated for a period of time and she came up and hugged me and she kissed me. Uh, and then she said, this is our this is our new family. And this woman approached me and said, I'm your mother. This man approached me, said, I'm your stepfather. Uh, and then this little boy was next to them. And I learned that he was my, uh, my half-brother. Uh, it was confusion. I mean, you're going from 
one world into another. I think the thing is we think that, well, kids are resilient. Well, they are. But how many of us have moments in our life that we look back to our earliest memories that were traumatic and they've never left us? So I think we don't give it, I don't think we give it enough respect. And as I look back on those days, it was very confusing for little old Dustin going from a world where I had no parents, I had foster families, or I was visiting my dad in and out of jail to now some structure, but it was very religious, the home I came into. My mother uh, was a born again Christian and the Bible was the philosophy. It was the, it was the rule book to go by. And if you break the rules, well, there's consequences to those rules. Now, I think every young, young adult or young individual child included needs to have rules. Um, but I think that the extreme side of it was the type of legalism that, um, that I had grown up in, at least for a number of years. Wow. So did you, did you fight it? How did you handle that? And I, I guess with your sister, someone that you as a confidant would talk a lot about this or was this? Yeah. Sense? Yeah. My sister, because she was older than me, she had seen so much more, you know, my memories were only so good prior to the age of five or five and a half, but my sister was older and she had been in and all those foster homes and some even more uh, than myself. And she had been, uh, they were going to adopt her out because my mother had left and, and taken off and there was nobody to to take care of her except for the foster care system. So Tanil and I would talk about it. Um, I would go to her for advice. She became, she was like my mom. She was more than my sister. Um, she was someone that I had relied on. She was, imagine that person in your life, or maybe you have them right now, that it was just judgment free. They would never judge you. And I refer to that as unconditional love. It came with no conditions at all. She knew the worst of me. She knew the best of me. Um, she made it very clear that this new home we were living in was different than the homes we had lived in before. And this home's rules were were very big on you break the rules, uh, you get spanked. Now, we had come from abuse already. So for us, it was no different. Uh, this world stated that the Bible says, you know, in order to to save a child, you must correct them. You, you must use you must use a stick or a club or a, or a hand or a, um, and our, in our home, it was a, it was a hand. So as a little boy, um, I was being put over my stepfather's knee. Um, my mother would approve of this, of course, and then I would be spanked. Uh, and I don't think today in terms of spanking, I had a cousin of mine, he and I've talked about this in the past. Um, I don't, it's just not for me. It's not for my kids. I'm not saying other parents don't come to that same conclusion or some that, that agree otherwise, but I had come from so much trauma so much dysfunction uh, where abuse and neglect were not every day, but happened fairly enough to now go to this new extreme. We're quickly realizing, is this God? Is this the creator of the universe? That in order to correct a child, you must quite candidly, you must hit them. You must hurt them to make them see the wrong. And now as a parent, as an adult, how many of us adults do stuff every single day or stupid or wrong or messed up? I mean, how many people get into a car after driving, after drinking too much and they don't hesitate, yet we feel that we should hold children to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to? Looking back, that is one of the things that, that quite candidly, I think would have been unfair. Um, and I hope one day with my kids, they don't look back and say the same, dad, you held us to a higher standard. Um, but it's getting to know me. And I think that's the process of saying it skillfully is, who are you? Because your journey mattered. Each and every moment in your life, no matter how painful it was, every single story helped shape you, even the bad ones. The good ones, well, success leaves clues. Failure leaves clue, clues as well. And so I failed a lot on my journey. I had to get to know the painful part of my story. And what I didn't realize was that the end, well, the end was just the beginning. 
say a little bit more. I'm not familiar with foster care, and I could imagine you were very grateful for some, maybe not so much for others, but a bit about, you know, this just, um, you know, going from home to home. So going from home to home for me was, I was to blame. And my sister would remind me through the years that the reason we had to keep getting sent to new foster homes uh, was because I was just a busy boy. I was a, a typical out of control little guy that didn't have somebody to tell him the rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, and you're not supposed to be at these homes. You know, usually these homes are designed for a single kid, not for not for a brother sister. We were a package, and having two kids come into a home was quite challenging. So it was hard for me to connect. You know, I didn't connect with my mother at first. Um, when I met her, when I came to live with her, because I'd had so many different mothers. My fear always was, are we going to go to a new home now? And I would ask my sister that through the years. Um, is it time yet? Are we being asked to leave? And that's something that was very real because there wasn't that security. There wasn't that safety. It was my social worker would show up or my social worker would say, okay, it's time for us to go. And then because my dad kept getting in for 30 days and out and in and out and in and out, we weren't able to be stuck in any home for too long to actually get to know the families long enough to, to want to stay there. Uh, my dad would pretend like nothing had ever happened. My sister would go back into school. Uh, I would go back into having a babysitter um, that lived uh, right next door, come down and take care of me when my dad was was working. So it wasn't the structure, uh, but I didn't know anything else. This notion of connecting, and you've said it a few times, you know, trouble connecting. Will you unpack a little bit of that and how, you know, because connecting is that notion of vulnerability. You know, you've mentioned some of the fear. I'm, I'm curious uh, how that's how that has evolved, or maybe not as much as you'd like as an adult. You know, so the home that when I went to live with my mother, it was a religious home. And the only friends you were allowed to have, the only connections or people you were allowed to have were people of the Christian faith, uh, most specifically people that went to their church. So I wasn't able to connect with kids right away. I, I didn't know how, um, but what I was able to do was play sports. I was really talented when it came to sports. I just was good at it. Like to this day, there are things I can just do really well playing basketball or, or soccer or football or baseball. And so I threw myself into sports. Uh, and I took quick to, to baseball. I became a pitcher uh, and a, a left fielder and a, and a center fielder. So that's how I started to meet meet others was through sports. I wasn't connecting with them on conversation because I hadn't been around kids. I was always around adults who were uh, telling my social worker, hey, how much are we getting paid this month? Or uh, in, in one of my reports, it was he had wet the bed. So are you going to give us an extra $50 to help cover the sheets? I was a line item and I felt it. I was always a line item to the families and my sister and I always knew that we were costing them money or they were only in it candidly, the ones that had taken care of us. Uh, they appeared to be at the time. They were only in it, quite frankly, because the state of California was paying them. Wow. So that's a lot. And it would be very easy to have very low self-esteem, Dustin, and thoughts about how you did preserve, enhance your own sense of self? I went on a journey. I didn't know what I wanted to do. My mother had wanted me to be a pastor of their church or one day become a pastor of their church. I didn't know if that's what I wanted. I just knew I was I was good at connecting with people when I could just sit and talk with them or I could, I could present. So one of my first jobs uh, was, my first job of listening was being a busboy. 
And I would recommend that to anybody, adult included, uh, give months of your life to putting your fingers in other people's food and cleaning up other people's dishes and just listening to the conversations because you'll learn a lot in that. I learned that the people you think have it all have nothing. The people you think have their peace don't have their peace. And you get to learn the behaviors of people. So I was a busboy. Shortly thereafter, I became an employee of Best Buy, um, a sales uh, producer for them. And I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I and that's okay. You know, I tell people that that ask me for advice, you know, Dustin, I don't know. I, I'm I'm interested in changing my career. I'm I'm unhappy. I'm bored. I'm and I tell them that's okay. It's okay to say I don't know. So if you don't have the answers, go ask questions of wise men and wise women. As we're going to talk about here in a bit, that's exactly what I did. I went on a journey to get to know others in the hopes of getting to know myself. Oh, I love that. We haven't talked about school and academics. So, you know, with all this instability at home, how did you do in school? What did you think of school? You are very good. So initially I was homeschooled when I came in to live with my mother and I wasn't a very good student because I couldn't pay attention. Uh, they then sent me and my sister and my brother to a um, to a Baptist school, which I didn't like very much. It was a little too rigid, a little too strict. Uh, then I went to back to being homeschooled. Um, I struggled. I struggled with retaining information. Now, I retain information today that I find to be fascinating. Things I like, I know I'll do everything I can to become an expert, at least no more than most. But I had a hard time remembering things. Uh, because my brain was too busy. I wanted to move on. It was like, all right, give me the give me the reader's digest. Don't give me a 45-minute lecture. Give me like the best 16 minutes and I will focus. So I had a hard time in school. My grades were were iffy at times from C's to D's, occasional B. I think I, I had one A if I remember when I was little and, and it was in um it was in a spelling uh spelling contest or spelling B, but in an English course that I had uh, I, I reached the top of, I guess, in that class. Uh, but everything else was hard. You know, math, I wasn't very good at it. I didn't really put the time into it. Um, but I was very interested in history. I liked learning from others. And I thought that, well, if I can learn from them, well, then I can ultimately grow. And the first magazine I ever I ever purchased for myself came after a really bad snowfall, which means I made money. I was uh, I was shoveling the snow at 14. And we lived uh, near a 7-Eleven. Now, in the United States, it's a, it's a convenient store that you, you can go to. And I, I saw a magazine there, and it said Forbes. And it said the richest people in the world. And I took my little pocket change, and I bought myself the magazine. And I read through it over and over and over. And I found that not all of these people were born into wealth. Not all of them had been handed everything. Candidly, some of them had started off lower than myself. They had started off at the bottom of the bottom. And it became at that moment a tipping point, a turning point, where I said, in order for me to get there, I'm going to have to build a cookbook. And a cookbook, and I love banana cream pie, It you need a recipe. And so I went on a journey from there to figure out what will the recipe be for my success, my dream, not Molly's, not anybody else in this world, but getting to know me. And ultimately, I'm convinced of it that the universe will conspire in your favor when you're following your path. Cannot believe you're 14. You found a Forbes magazine and changed your life forever. It did. Crazy. How was your sister, as you had this epiphany, did, did I kind of envision you running back to your sister and telling her? How did she respond to it? So my sister was a hard worker. 
She was working at a restaurant or she was cleaning homes, but like me, she wasn't able to find her peace. And so she would go from one thing to another. Um, When I was 14 that year, where I couldn't say to my sister, hey, let's come read Forbes magazines. My sister, unfortunately, uh, she got involved with a pretty bad gang uh, and the gang turned her on to heroin. And so at the age of 16, my sister started her her heroin uh, addiction. And what quickly turned from a hobby or just trying it from time to time became an obsession, so much so that she went into rehab uh, and then she left the family. Uh, she had moved away at the age of 16, almost 17, but 16 years old, uh, to go live with my biological grandmother in Colorado, where for her, it began destruction over the next number of years of her life, leaving me behind ultimately um, to figure out who I was on my own, not having that confidant, uh, except for when she would call me and she would ask, hey, bro, how are you? But I knew I knew that wasn't going to be my path. It couldn't be. It, de- it had destroyed my family. And so I had to stay away from it. And so I did. Okay, that sounds very cerebral, but given that she's the one that got you to where you are and then she bolts, I mean, that seems like it would have been really distressing. It was the most challenging years of my life. My sister, however, didn't get the help she had needed. She didn't get the help that that was required. Um, she didn't have somebody to tell her, hey, look, I understand what you're going through or I don't understand what you're going through. Because my sister had protected me as a little boy. And my father would leave for sometimes days at a time. And as Tanil would say, we had nothing to drink. It was this rotten timber house that we lived in in Rainbow. The water was brown. And we never saw our dad drink the brown water out of the tap. So what did we do? We grabbed the beer that dad drank. And so that's what we would drink, which is one of the reasons why social services had to get involved. Uh, we were being severely neglected. There was no food. Um, and as I said, my dad would leave and he'd come back days later. So for my sister, when she had left, I know she went to go find herself, um, but I did had I did feel abandoned. I felt she had left me, um, and I felt lost. Ah, that is really brutal. That's dark. That's really dark. And did you plead with your sister at all to like get off? I mean, I'm just I'm just wondering. Did you try to? What were your efforts to? I wanted to go with her. I wanted her to take me with her. And she said, you got to stay here. I need to go find myself. And I didn't realize that this journey in life, we all do it differently. Some of us decide just to get into a a plane and leave. Some of us get into a bus and a car. Some of us hide behind Netflix. But at some point in your life, you're going to have to make a decision to do it on your own or to do it with others. Um, I wasn't of the age where I could have been that helped to my sister to say, you don't need to leave. I will sit with you as long as it takes. Tell me what you're going through. Tell me what you're feeling. I'm sure the story would have been, I felt abandoned. My mother left me to go start a new relationship. Dustin, I show up at the airport and my mother's proud to show me her newborn son. And my thoughts are, why did you leave my brother and I behind in foster care? I know what would have been in her head because now as a father, as a parent, as an adult, I feel the same thing. And so at the time, my sister, who was dealing with severe mental health trauma, mental health issues on the next level, um, she had been told that the Bible was the only way to fix her, that religion is the only way to get better, as opposed to using science. And that's the thing today that I tell people, that if you've been indoctrinated to believe that that the only answers lie in a book, in a holy book, 
Um, while that is good for some areas of your life, and I think there's a lot of great advice and counsel and wisdom and, and things that will improve the outcomes in all areas, I still think that if you're going through things that are mentally hurting you, I think you should go talk to somebody. And then there are times where maybe to take off the edge would require you to take something that can help you. Um, and that's the stage that my sister never got. She never got that help she needed. Um, she was told that, well, quite candidly, the Bible would make you better. Mm. So how long was she with your grandmother? Not that long. She had uh, got involved back to uh, the gang. Uh, she had gotten involved back with this gang called the Crips. And she was with um, two two drivers when they had done a crime, a major crime. And my sister had gotten picked up shortly thereafter and had been sent to, to jail, at least a holding, uh, waiting sentencing. So she was gone for a little bit less than a year. And then she came home and she was different. You know, my 16-year-old sister, she wasn't her anymore. She was as if she had seen she had seen a world that was too old. It was too, it was too far beyond her, that she had witnessed something and she could never go back. It took away her youth. And that's the thing that I I, I get today as I look back, that if I had been to her, if I'd been the older brother. What I've been able to help her, you know, the last thing to leave a person is their peace. You know, this is the reason why I started lifestuff.com is that life is hard. It's really tough. And the last thing to leave a person is their hope. And so that's where I decided with the mission of if I could just give somebody hope long enough that I can connect them with somebody else that imagine the books that can be written, imagine the dreams that could be lived, imagine the families that could be fixed. That if I could do that, I could do that in her name. Because as the younger brother, I wasn't in a place where I could be her guide. I was like her son, somebody that she had said, you will always be first. Wow. When did you last see her? So in 2014, I had just left the gym. That's where I'm getting emotional now. Um, I had my son. In the car, he was two years old, and I got a phone call from my my half brother, and it said, and he and I hadn't spoken in a while, and he had said, they just found Tennille, she's dead, and I, and I didn't believe it. I said, no, 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 what, what, what are you saying? Tennille's dead. I hung up the phone. My two year old sees my reaction. I go home and it was the worst feeling in the world because I had felt that I had let her down, that in her moment where she needed her brother, she couldn't count on me, that I had been too self-absorbed. I had relative success. I was in the insurance industry. I had a large book of clients. I was making well over 300000 a year. I was doing great as a college dropout. That ain't too damn bad. But I had been too focused on myself. And now I was in a stage in life to be able to help her. That while I was two and a half years younger, I was in a stage where I could move mountains for her. And I still kept judging her. Why can't you? Why can't you figure it out? Why can't you stop taking drugs? Why can't you just stay focused? Why can't you... And I did not realize at the time I did not have empathy. Mm. 
and I did not have sympathy. And they are two separate things. And it is that in life. It is in the it is in the storm, Molly. And I've learned this now that most storms we are convinced they come to block our path. Losing my sister was the one that cleared it. Because then I had to get stuck with me, getting to know me on all levels. What kind of man am I? What's my integrity look like? What will people say about me when my back is turned? And then if I can make a difference to keep someone from losing their sister, my sister left behind three children, three babies. When I talk to them, my heart breaks that I can't bring back their mom, but what I can do is live for her and they can live for her. So the last time I had talked to her, the conversation went like this. It was three days before they found her. Hey, bro. Hey, sis. How you doing? I'm tired. I'm really tired. I said, why don't you go take a nap? <laughs> Not that kind of tired. I'm just, I'm really tired. And she said, look, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you, and I'm sorry I'm not a good aunt, but I love you. I always have, and I got to go. And she hung up. Three days later, they found her. You know, when you look back at these moments of your life, there were clues. There's always clues. Failure leaves the biggest clues ever. Success, we miss most of those clues. But it was all around me, and what she needed was someone to jump on a plane and say to her, I'm here. And those are the things that you will have these regrets. You will make mistakes. But as in Aikido, it says, that is what you learn from. I know as I've gotten older, this was 2014, so we're now eight years in, that I could not, I could not save her. But I will tell you that it, even in death, my connection with her has never been stronger. I don't believe what others would refer to as God. I believe in this thing called the collective. Um, think of it like light attracts light, energy attracts energy, that my sister's in my collective, and so are my ancestors. Um, all the way back, all those who got me here, and it's in my code. My code has told me that while life's tough, you can be tougher. And that began the journey. I was driving to see a client. I was all proud. I was in my blue Maserati, showing off. Uh, don't have one anymore. And I had thought, you know, it's time I tell the story, but it's time I tell others' story. So I decided at that moment, I'm going to start a podcast. And I didn't know who was going to tune in. Candidly, I didn't know any celebrities or, or rich people. I was an insurance guy. And I decided, well, what am I going to call it? And it was as if I heard this, as if, as if I heard this song in my head. And it said, life's tough. You can't be tougher. And I went online to GoDaddy and I saw that no one had owned the website. It was just a, a, a sample page that said, if you want to buy this. And so I called GoDaddy, the broker services, and this, this lady answered and she said, broker sales, how can I help you? And I said, I'm looking to buy a website, lifestough.com. And she goes, it sure is. And I said, it sure is. And she said, well, what are you looking to buy it for? And I gave her my number of what I, I, I wanted to, to make a bid on. And she said, I'm going to help you get this. And I want to tell you that this, this has impacted me. And I said, how so? And this is the universe. The universe will send you things that are the truth is stranger than fiction moments. And she said to me, my husband died last year of cancer. This is the first, this is the first Christmas without him. And it's been the hardest transition for myself and my kids. 
And she said, so I'm going to help you get the website. And she did. I got the website. I still didn't know what to do with it. I, I was, again, I was an insurance guy. What do I know about media? And I decided that, well, I'm going to do something and I'm going to create a show. Life's tough. You can be tougher. My first guest uh, was the pastor, Pastor Ed Lockmiller, the one who had wanted to adopt my sister and I. He was my, my biological mother and biological father's uh, marriage counselor as well. And then with that began a journey of getting to know people from Evander Holyfield to Wyclef Jean to, to Tim Draper to, to Chef Lydia Bastianich to the late Mary Wilson from the Supremes. From all around the world, they came under the same premise of life's tough. They had collectively agreed. And so what started off as wanting to get to know me, wanted to get to know who I am, I wanted to understand from others how they overcame. You see, in order to gain wisdom, you need to ask questions of wise men and wise women. So that's what the show has been about. It is asking the questions, how did you get back up? John Tesh, when you got diagnosed with cancer, how did you tell your family? Um, Orson Scott Card, when you're the most successful person in your family, what's that like? Chef Lydia Bastianich, how do you manage restaurants and being a mom and being, a, being awesome? How do you do this? And then what's it like to lose it all? And it's that journey that we're on, Molly. So what I would tell you is this, that my sister to this day, she continues to be the greatest mentor that I've ever had because she to me is the perfect model and the perfect story that life's tough, it's hard. But when you have family, they will get you through it. When you have friends, they will get you through it. And that is what my sister did. My sister has been there to get me through it all. Um, and has been unconditional and unwavering um, because I don't want to let her down. And now people count on me. I'm called the count for a reason. They count on me to deliver. And that's what I do. I help people raise money for foundations. I help people connect to others. I help people reach their greatest aspirations because it's a mission. It's one my sister and I had embarked on as kids. Um, Thank you. I, uh, I love that your relationship with Tanil is even stronger. And we know she smiles so fondly upon you. It's very moving, very moving. Justin, so you you didn't stay in college. You went into insurance doing just dandy. You start this site that takes off. And perhaps just a, a, just a fast track on how you know, how you just, um, you know, luck is opportunity, meeting preparedness, how you um, got yourself to where you are at this moment. How it happened. It's, you know, the purpose of life is to find your gift, not anybody else's to find yours, and then to develop it, and then to give it away. I realized after doing the Life's Tough podcast, that each episode I had was preparing me for the next and the next and the next and it's that, the small details, that most people will think it's no big deal. But to me, it was. It mattered. It's what Forbes had taught me back when I was 14. Excellence requires excellence. That success leaves clues. In the opportunity, well, there's always challenges, but what are you going to do about it? And so the show itself became, to the best of my ability, because all it takes is all you got, it became excellence. And one of my podcast uh, guests Richard Weiss. At the time, he was the president of the Explorers Club. He also has a TV show on PBS called Born to Explore. 
he had enjoyed the the interview so much that he had said to me, look, I like your style. It's a little raw. It's a little different, which it is. Um, as you can tell, I, I actually I get emotional um, quite often. He said, would you like to come and tell the stories of the Explorers Club? And I said, in what way? And he said, I don't know, come interview them. Or and I said, would you let me film them? He said, sure. So I had gone online and had found a film team in Lisbon, Portugal, and said, look, I want to create a documentary. I have no experience whatsoever. They said, great, we don't have any experience either in creating a documentary. Um, but would you just follow me around with some cameras for a couple of days? I'm going to get us in front of some really interesting people. And I'm just going to ask them what's their name, where they're from, and tell me their story. And they said, we can do that. So we found our, our rate that was good for both of us. I flew into Lisbon. This is 2019. And the next thing I know, I'm filming a documentary on a group called the Explorers Club. I'm interviewing Fabian Cousteau. I'm interviewing aquanauts and astronauts. And um, I'm, I'm talking to some of the greatest explorers in the world who are on BBC or National Geographic or name the name the TV show that they have been there. And I'm asking them, how did you do it? Okay, so tell me step number one. Now you got out of bed. Step number two, like take me through the steps of getting to the top of Everest. Take me to the to the steps, David Williams, astronaut from Canada. How do you become an astronaut? How do you beat out thousands of others or tens of thousands of others? And the story kept coming back the same. Excellence, excellence, excellence. It's giving it all you have. All it takes is all you got. So I gave the documentary all I had. I had no experience. I had enough of Google that I could ask questions. And I am proud to this day, while it is not going to be an A or B level film in your in your uh, your archive, it's probably like C or D level. Um, mm -hmm. It's on Amazon. Um, it's on uh, iTunes. It's on um, a number of different streaming platforms. It's called The League of Explorationaires. Uh, one of my guests on the show, Wyclef Jean, you might know him from a group called the Fugees. Wyclef even created my my soundtrack for the theme song. And so it's interesting that when you are a give, when you give, 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 when you're the giver, that eventually the universe will reward you with some luck. And that's what happened. The universe sent me some of the most amazing people in the world to come and help me on my journey. It was at that moment that I started to level up. It was at that moment that my story really started to come alive. I love it. I just can see you all in, not knowing any better. I will make this work the end. And that when there's a will, there's a way. That is so amazing, Dustin. Bravo. Um, you know, it comes to mind, you know, you're, you're doing great now. You didn't have a lot of money before. Would you share with us just your relationship with money? So I will, I will tell you this. I recently did an uh, interview for a magazine and to me, it's not that important. Success to me is defined as what do people say about you when your back is turned? That to me is success because that's going to be your, your story, air story. It's for your heirs. What are your heirs going to, what are they going to say about you? What are the people that have met you along the way going to say about you? I can promise you that is a lot more important than how many zeros you have in your bank account because it's the impact it makes. It's that one heart at a time. It's that are you in a spot or in a position that you could you could pay for the person behind you in the carpool lane or you could you could pay to give them a meal and you'd say, but they don't deserve it. It's not about that. That's called giving mercy and giving grace. You see, in our own lives, we have been given grace more times than we ever give we ever give credit for. We've been shown mercy more times than we've ever been 
we give credit for. And so showing grace and showing mercy to others, even strangers, is how you make an impact because you have to make a decision. And that is this, do you want to leave this world far better than the way you found it? And if you do, then that's how you start. It's one heart at a time. I love that. Dustin, grace, say more. What's grace to you? Grace is something that, that you don't really deserve. And it's something that you get along the way. You know, I, I like to think of my life and my story as, as a book or a film, because it is. Each of our stories is the basis for a blockbuster miniseries. Uh, each of our stories is the basis, I imagine, for a novel. And it's okay in life to reinvent yourself. You know, that's one of the things that I think that most people don't do. They get stuck in a, they get stuck in a rut and they think, oh, my life is very, my life isn't good. I'm not happy. I go, no, who's causing that? Now there are situations outside of your control that, that are causing it. I sit on the board for the March of Dimes and I will tell you that to lose a child, to lose a child is one of the greatest pains a parent can feel. I've spoken to these families. I've seen these families. I've been on the board of the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. So for anybody to say, why are people coming into the United States? Because they, if you only knew some of the conditions of some of these people that they have to live in and they're coming here for opportunity, if you only knew what it's like for an asylum seeker to have to leave everything or a refugee that for no fault of their own, some nut job took everything from their family. And so to me, grace and mercy and empathy and sympathy are all areas that we at different times we need to start showing. And that starts with getting to know you. Some people, candidly, Molly, do not feel anything. They don't feel. And to me, I said this to somebody recently. I said, look, that person isn't capable of feeling that. They don't feel it, but you do. Don't ask others to go do it. You go do it yourself. And if your area of, of strength is to give, give. Know this, that if you are the taker, there will come a moment in your life where you need, and there won't be people around you to give back. And it's remaining humble. I've seen some of the wealthiest people lose it all. Most recently, and there's a man by the name of Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX. I had met him on a podcast about two and a half years ago. At the time, he had the world. He had everything. Earlier this year, Forbes had given him, a, what, I think a 15 or 18 or $20 billion price tag. He's, he's worth all this money. Now, in a blink of an eye, the newspaper turns against him. Foundations now don't want anything to do with him. The whole world turns on him. And now they say he's bankrupt. He has nothing to his name. This story happens every day. Now, that's an extreme. But you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so if you are at a place in life where you're at a place to give, this is the time to do it. Because you don't know your situation. You don't know if your health is going to change. You don't know if your business is going to change. You don't know if the world's government or economies are going to implode give today, make a difference today. And that was the decision I make made with Life's Tough. I knew that by doing that, I was going to lose money. It was never going to be money. It was going to be a ministry in order to give back and to touch lives and to candidly leave this world far better than the one I had. I want my kids, my, my, my son and my daughter to have a world that is, that is theirs, that is theirs and a group of people around them that are creating harmony for them and unity at the same time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's I'm I'm really blown away Dustin by how you have been able to be on the outside looking in to recount all of this and uh I really appreciate you you going there. 
uh, you're uh, you know successful in business, and I would be remiss. You know, we learn the most in business from our mistakes. Would you share with listeners just perhaps a few of your biggest business lessons, just to impart a little bit of that learning, so that they might make new mistakes? Yeah, you know, that's a really really good question. Um, one of my mentors, Robert Grant, said, "If you're starting a business for the sole purpose of getting rich or making a lot of money, it won't succeed." So in my earliest days, I thought of businesses, oh my gosh, I'm going to start a website design company. It's going to take off. I'm going to create a tech company. The whole world's going to jump on board. I'm going to help a billion people. So the failures that I had were this. You first have to see, does your backyard want it? Do people in your backyard, what's the prototype? Because your customers will help you succeed if it's something they need and something they want. Um, What I had learned, at least for my failures, was that I didn't ask enough questions. I didn't ask enough questions of myself. And I did not ask enough questions of those that I had around me, people that I thought could be good business partners, people that wanted to help support me, because everybody has a motive. So I suggest getting to know what is your motive? It's the clarity of your motive. What is the purpose of this business? And if the the purpose is, well, my mom, dad did it or some other person, I go, that was their dream. What is your dream? What do you want? And if you don't know what you want, turn off Netflix, turn off the TV, get a good book. How many people right now can remember a time in their life where they love to read. And that was the time they learned. You learned a lot. You learned new words. Oh, what's that word mean? Connected dots. Go back to a time. And at that moment, I do believe through learning and to listening to wise men and wise women on different areas. Maybe it's you're interested just in business. So get a book about business. Maybe it's, I want to go back to school, become a doctor. Then get a book about what do doctors know? Or maybe it's programming. That there's so much information out there. It starts with the heart of being curious be curious. And that's when doors start to open. It's so fabulous. We could go on and on and on. Well, we so can I'm keep going. going. I we, love this. I've, this. I can tell you this. This is this is the side that the count never shows. The, the count, I don't, I've never done this. Well, I appreciate you going there because that says a lot about you and uh, your quest to continue to grow. Dustin is really inspiring and a great role model for all those listening. Uh, let me take to a little bit of reflection. If you had to pick three words or three phrases that you think best describe you, Dustin, what are they? Oh, boy. Oh, I have not used this in a while. I think it quite often, but I don't speak it out loud. It is what it is. You, know, you drop something, you break something, something messes up. It doesn't go your way. It is what it is. Because if you get stuck, they say the mind that lives in the past builds a prison around itself and locks itself within. You had a tough upbringing. It is what it is. Can't change that. You can't. What you can do is learn from it. So my first would be that. My next one would be success leaves clues. Look at the people around you who are successful, maybe in their business or uh, personal lives. What are they doing? And start taking note of that. And guess what? Be an idea thief. You think some of those people around you weren't idea thieves themselves? Of course they were. It is okay to steal ideas. All right. Idea number one. Someone opens the door for me. Let me open the door for somebody else. Let me say thank you and please, and you're welcome. Let me go back to being courteous to others. Those are small things you can do. The bigger things you can do is to make an impact in your circle, to reach out to somebody you hadn't talked to in a while. Now, always remember, every relationship comes with a cost. They all do. And you want to prioritize. Who gets your time? You know, an author that I love, ericweir.com. His book is Who's Eating Your Pie? And I look at it like that. If there's only so much of you to go around, there's only so much pie. 
who should get your pie? Now, there's a difference between being a 15-year-old and being a 30-year-old and being a 50-year-old and a 70-year-old. That morbidity and mortality is for certain. None of us will live forever. So if our time here is not infinite, um, it is measured. And at some point in the future, we're going to run out of it. Where should your time be going? So I refer to that as prioritizing your life. What should be getting your time? And ultimately, who should be getting it? You're, you're remarkable. So normally when I ask that, I get like the description of the person, meaning like if I was on the outside in, what would I use? And so I just have to share that one that came to my mind for you is impassioned. The second one is speed. And, you know, I, I think the third one is just this effervescence of you. And that's just how you land for me. And it's just, uh, I have the biggest smile on my face. I wish listeners could see it. So, um, Dustin, one last question. And you've been very generous and very open. And I just wanted to ask, what was it like for you to share your journey today? It was freedom. Because I didn't trust anybody up to this point to be able to share it. Because typically when someone reaches out to me, I had a call with someone this morning, a, a platform that specializes in yachts, and they want from me. Everyone tries to take from me. And that's okay. All have motives. What I love about you, Molly, and getting to know you over many, many months is that you're genuine and you do not let your heart dictate everything you do. You think before you act, you are not impulsive. And I love that about you. And you're truly one of the most brilliant women that I have ever met in my life. And so when I had to make a decision of all the shows and all the people that have been asking the count to come on, there wasn't anyone that came to mind other than I have to go on, say it skillfully. Because to me, that is the story of your life. When you say it skillfully, it will be like it's a movie. Because when you know your story, when you know exactly what it was, when you own the lies, how many people have lied about their story along the way? Don't. Tell the truth. It's in that becomes freedom. When you've made mistakes, when you've messed up, you don't have to go announce it. But when you get to know who you are, you get to know the root of me, you make a decision. Do you want to be a me, Inc., or do you want to be a me, LLC.? And to me, I want to be part of an LLC, a group of people like-minded. And Molly, today, it was one of the greatest honors of my career, my professional career, to be on a show with someone that says it so skillfully. And it has been an honor to getting to know you and to telling you at least chapter one, or maybe part one of the Count of Monte Crypto, i.e. Dustin. Uh, we will listen to future chapters. You are too kind, Dustin. You are a man on the move. And I appreciate you opening up about life's ups, downs, twists, turns. I appreciate you for being part of the solution and inspiring us all and helping us to be safe, seen, and heard in our true and very, very best selves. You take good care, my friend. I'm here to support you any way I can. You rock. Thank you again, Molly. Okay, folks, that was great. I have two thoughts for the week. One from Dustin, of course, the purpose of life, to find your gift, develop it, and give it away. And our friend Albert Einstein, the important thing is to never stop questioning. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Dustin's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work 
and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 